Dave Williams presents Conversations.Buzz. I don't see how this conversation can be anything except a reunion and, uh, you know, a lot of talk about the past, uh, but that's okay. I'm okay with that. Gary Gerald, the G-Man, 3,000 NBA games under his belt, and uh, Dave Grosby still waiting his turn to get at the mic. (laughs) (laughs) Great to Uh, see you guys. Yes, indeed. Gary, look, forgive me for asking. I just know that people who have known and followed your career for so many years, generations, if I might say, at this point, People are wondering. So, do you mind sharing uh, sharing your age with us at this point? Uh, I'm 83. Okay. Where now, is the portrait of Dorian Gray in your house? <laughs> <laughs> because you look fantastic, man. You you look absolutely fantastic uh, for, well, for 83 you, and living that life. That's that's unbelievable, Gary. You're yeah. very you're very kind. Yeah. I, I I appreciate that, and I'm I am fortunate. And we all know it can change in the blink of an eye. And you just uh, you deal with it as best you can. So I think I'm, I think I'm attitude blessed. attitude has everything in the world to do with it, along with uh, enjoying your life, just having a you know great time in terms of the people that you're with and the things that you're doing on a day to day basis. Everything going good. Um, I don't know where to start. Uh, take us back to 1985 when the when the Kings first uh, arrived in Sacramento. And as I recall, you guys can cur- tell me perhaps who was it, a uh, member of the team that got off the plane and said and and looked towards the skyline of Sacramento, which could barely be seen from the airport at that point, and said, "Where's the city?" <laughs> I don't remember who said where is the city. I remember Reggie Theus calling it. Never seen so many farmers in one place at the same time. <laughs> Do you remember who said where's the city, Gary? Out there, um, it, it was really in the hinterlands. There was nothing in that particular area. And when the arena was slapped up uh, in, what, nine months' time, a temporary bandbox that seated 10,333, uh, Greg Lukenbill, but Reggie Reggie would bring his shotgun to practice, and after practice, he'd go out in the fields outside the the arena and shoot pheasants. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it a really sheep was. Or two. The Thomas North of the Thomas really was absolutely nothing there at that point. I mean that 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 yeah. place stood out there by itself. There was no restaurants near it. There were no hotels near it. There was nowhere near it. So I mean, when you flew into the airport, which is there's nothing there either, and you went there to Natomas, you're like. People live here. Right. And and the amazing thing was that it was only that site was only like two and a half miles from downtown Sacramento. And yet it right. seemed like it was a, a different world altogether. Yeah. Well, like I say, it was a, it was a sheep town at the time around the North yeah. Thomas, a lot of, a lot of sheep. And I remember that uh, opening day. Uh, I remember we broadcast at KFBK. We broadcast the first game and, and for a number of seasons, I don't remember exactly how long, but uh, uh, Graz, you and I, as I recall this, when uh, when uh, KFPK got the broadcast rights to to uh, to do the King, carry the Kings games, and Gary Gerald was hired, my understanding is through some uh, very heavy lobbying and perhaps arm twisting from uh, from KFPK to uh, the Lucanbills. I remember you and I sat there in my in my apartment living room. And we worked out the broadcast format, 
how it would go, how it would start the interview process and, and all of that. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, I had gotten hired. I'd tried to get the job there for, I'd been fired from the television station from channel 40 and had been out of work for about six or seven months and was, was about to go to CNN actually to work on uh, headline news. And then went in one more time to, to Paul Aaron, I think was the boss then and said, yeah. look, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm ready. I can stay. I'd like to do this. And he said, well, you know, we're still not sure. And I said, it's three weeks before the season starts. And I said, well, you know, forget it, man. I'm out of here. Screw it. And he just kind of wanted to hear that, I suppose. And he hired me. So I went into work um, the next day and met Tyler Cox, who was the news director. And he said, I don't have anything for you to do, so you might as well go. And I said, well, I'm going to like this, I think. You know, my first day and I've got it off. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, why don't you let me see the format for the basketball games and I can see, you know, how I can fit in. And he said, we don't have a format. So I said, well, you know, I've done college basketball games for, for a while. I've got an idea of what we can do for a format. And he says, why don't you and Dave Williams figure it out? That's exactly what we did. We, we put in three pregame shows and an, an hour-long talk show at the end. And then, you know, Gary, now, now Gary, I, I'm not sure if we had met before then. I knew who you were, of course, because, you know, Gary had, Gary was doing, I, I knew he was the guy who was on NBC and doing auto racing and just started doing football as well and was doing Rayleigh's commercials. Well, he'd been and, on Channel and, 3 forever, too. I, I wasn't there, though. I wasn't there for that. Gary was off Channel 3 by that oh, okay. point. But he was doing, he was doing IndyCars. And was doing doing auto racing, and I remember thinking, "Geez, well, this guy's not going to want to do the game for this long. He's just going <laughs> to do him for a couple of years. He's he's already network bound." And um, then met him, and geez, what a great guy this is. And and Gary didn't know. I don't, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here. Didn't know a whole lot about basketball at that point, which is astonishing to hear now because he's the best play-by-play -play man in the game. And he just was kind of learning it as he went along. And you know, I really learned a lot from him in, in that aspect of, about. Um, you know, how you, how you conduct yourself professionally and how you, how you can adapt to things. And, you know, he took right to it like a duck to water. And, you know, we had fun right away and got along because, you know, it's impossible not to get along with Gary Gerald. And, and so we got along right away. We had a good time right away. And, you know, the fun thing about that first year was, was, you know, everything was new, number one, but there were fun things that happened that year. I mean, beating the Boston Celtics, yeah. the defending champs at home was, was amazing, was just amazing. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was it was an unbelievable first year for for everything considering you know moving from Kansas City and 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 being in that um, being in that um, warehouse basically right yeah. it was it was a warehouse uh, was a very intimate place it was a very difficult place to play and I remember being just excited when NBA players would come into town and thinking geez these guys this really is a, a major league town now yeah Gary how did you come to it well it's it's kind of a convoluted story and i and i i try to condense it uh but it, to me it was intriguing it was i think january of 1985 i get a phone call out of the blue from my old friend dutch van dusen who unfortunately passed away within this last year just about a year ago right now mm. uh but he was working with the kings in kansas city there was sacramento ownership there was a lot of speculation about whether or not with the Sacramento ownership, were they trying to move the franchise to the West Coast? Well, I get this cold call from Dutch Van Dusen, who says, I want to play what if with you. And I'm kind of intrigued. I said, oh, well, okay. He said, what if the Kansas City Kings were to move to Sacramento? Would you be interested in being the radio play-by-play -play guy? And I'm like, I take a beat and I, well, what? Of course <laughs> I would. Now, there'd have to be some minor changes and arrangements to work around 
possible conflicts that I have because of my responsibilities as a, a freelancer with NBC. And uh, he said that wouldn't be a problem. Well, a few weeks go by and I get a call from Paul Aaron, who uh, Dave Graz mentioned just a moment ago. He was the general manager of K, uh, KFBK. And he said, Gary, uh, day after tomorrow, I'm flying to Kansas City to see the Kings, to meet a couple of people in the organization. Would you be interested in going? And I said, well, of course. And so we flew to Kansas City. We met Joe Axelson, the general manager. We met Bob Witsit, his assistant general manager, Julie Fye, who was the head of the media relations department, and uh, Kevin Harlan, who was in that season was doing Kings basketball in Kansas City on radio. And so it was terrific. And we fly back home. And I'm thinking, well, something must be happening, but nobody's saying anything definitive. And then a couple more weeks go by and I get a phone call and it's from Kansas City saying, Gary, the Kings are going to be out to play the Lakers in L.A. and the Warriors in Oakland. We would like you to go and record the game so that it will be kind of like an audition so that we can hear your style. So I take my then teenage son, Bob, out of school and we go to L.A. and we go to San Francisco or to Oakland uh, for those two games. And I set up in the nosebleeds at the great Western forum in LA, a couple of rows behind the legendary chick Hearn. And, you know, you're a mile and a half away from the floor looking down there. And my son's trying to keep some, you know, basic stats and things like that. So we do the game and then we, you know, and it was interesting because at that time the Kings were staying at the airport Marriott hotel and it was the Marriott's, courtesy bus shuttles that took the kings to the arena <laughs> so bobby and i go and get on the on the shuttle bus and uh, you know the likes of reggie theus and eddie johnson and larry drew and lasalle thompson looking around like who the hell are these guys what are they doing on our bus <laughs> and bill jones who was the athletic trainer at the time uh said this is gary and this is his son bob and they're okay take care of them and those guys were welcoming open arms and it was just that simple so we do the two games i later find out that that's what joe axelson listened to when he was driving from kansas city to sacramento when the relocation had been completed and that was i guess the final hurdle or test and i had to have his blessing and i remember at the time i didn't tell him it had been 15 years since i'd last done any play-by-play basketball um so I, Axelson later put his arm around me. He said, kid, you were a hell of a lot better than you had any right to be. <laughs> I said, to myself, I said, if you only knew. And Raj, you're so right. I mean, I didn't know the NBA game. I didn't, I didn't know the ins and outs and the people. I listened to the legendary Bill King, Warriors basketball in Northern California. I knew a little bit about that. I loved his irascibility, and I loved how he just would – full-on make these blatant attacks of the officials and their ineptitude in one thing or another. And he had a way of shaping words and creating a picture. And I just thought, wow, that's that's pretty amazing. And now I've got a chance to be part of this, uh, this company. And I also later found out that I guess they had to open the job publicly, even though, you know, they wanted a local identity. That's how I entered the picture in the first place. And Dutch Van Dusen, uh, was the was the conduit, but uh, there were a lot of broadcasters I later found out already working in the NBA who wanted to relocate to California with the knowledge that the franchise was going to shift from Kansas City to Sacramento. So 
in a long convoluted way. That's that's kind of how the whole thing evolved and came about. And then I met Graz and we ended up that that first year doing things together. And and uh, we I know we seem to hit it off. And even though, you know, I'm just kind of stumbling my way along thinking, well, this is a wonderful opportunity and I'm so excited for Sacramento. And this now legitimately you have a, a professional sports franchise that's the real deal. And people were excited. And and so many times I've heard over the years how I learned the game from you on radio. Yeah. And that's, I think, is a, is a great testimony to the fact that we all learned together. But there was this passion. And the sellout streak from day one went to almost 500. I think it was 497 consecutive sellouts. Wow. For those, for the Kings in the first, what, 10 years in, in California. We got them all to come down in, in tuxedos and, and evening <laughs> gowns on opening night. Opening night it was, yeah, it was tuxedos. You remember that, Graz? Yeah, Begley. <laughs> <laughs> There's still uh, but, a picture in the, in the media center now at Golden One Center, which is the home of the Kings in downtown Sacramento. And there's a giant blow up in the media room of me at center court in a tuxedo interviewing Reggie Theus. And it had to have been from, from opening night. And, uh, and that's a, just a, a cool reminder every night I walk in there that, uh, you know, about what happened 39 years ago. Uh, that's just amazing to me that it's been that long. 39 years without getting a sniff of the championship. <laughs> well, that's oh, not that's... true. That's not true. <laughs> one, one year, one year. Um, and Gary, by the way, learned very well from Bill King because he would take some shots at those referees too when he liked what they were doing. And then yeah. I, I maintain that, uh, was it 2000, Gary, the, the seven-game series of the Lakers where Tim Donahue, uh, who oh. you know, went to jail for throwing games, you know, yeah. called, called – 30 fouls on the Kings and five on the Lakers, and the Lakers won the game. I thought that Kings team right there, I don't know how you felt, Gary. I thought that yeah. Kings team right there was good enough to win the, win the championship and, and probably would have if they had gotten a, a fair shake in that game. Yeah, that was 2002. It ended up being a seven-game series with the Lakers. The Lakers won game seven in Sacramento in overtime, and it was a game where I think the Lakers shot, I think it was 24 free throws in the fourth quarter. 24 free throws, which – Many nights is an entire game, and right. they did it in one 12-minute segment. And, uh, yes, the Kings, I, I really believe that year it was the then New Jersey Nets who represented the Eastern Conference, and uh, they got swept by the Lakers, and I think the Kings would have, would have swept them as well. Uh, so they were, you know, they were that close, but uh, that close doesn't put a ring on your finger, that's for sure. I want to throw something out to both of you guys. I think it's kind of the obvious question. It's something that is always being talked about in uh, in, in terms of uh, the NBA in sports circles, and that is how the game has changed over the re- over fairly recent years, and how we see so many three point shots, and nobody goes to the nobody goes to the rim anymore. Uh, what 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 is your take on that, Gary? Well, I, it, no question. I mean, it is it's been a monstrous change. Uh, the physicality that we used to see, I mean, it used to be that, you know, you could have knockdown slugfests, literally, yeah. without penalty or without any repercussion. And now you breathe on a guy and they'll review it to see if it was up around the head or the neck for a possible flagrant foul. Uh, it's it's a totally different game. Uh, I think <clears throat> David Stern, when he was the commissioner, the late David Stern, then succeeded by Adam. Um, uh, Adam Silver. Adam Silver. Thank you. <clears throat> They they wanted to 
make this a more fan-friendly game in terms of offense. And so they changed some of the regulations related to how you could hand check and one thing or another defensively. And that has just made, it's just opened the door for, you know, on the offensive end of the game. And then with analytics, you know, and you can debate analytics until you're blue in the face. And I'm not a big analytics person, but you're right. You see guys on a transition break. And we saw it last night in the Sacramento Kings win over the San Antonio Spurs transition break. The Kings don't run to the rim in the break if they have numbers. If it's a three-on-one, three-on-two, they run to to spray out the ball out to the corners to shoot a three. Right. Well, it's wonderful if you make the three, but if you don't make the three, then you've given up a certain two. And so you're kind of torn between that. And it's, it's a philosophical type thing, and it varies from organization to organization. But what we're seeing, in my mind, in recent years, and last night was a perfect example, Victor Wembanyama who is a just-turned-20-year-old rookie from France who plays for San Antonio, is a generational player. He's 7'3", and his ball-handling skills are just... I mean, you you take a breath and you say, how can he do that? How can any person who is 7'3 handle the ball the way he does? But it's not just Victor Wembanyama. It's every ball player now. And the ball-handling skills have become so much better. The athleticism is so much better. Uh, if they want to attack the rim, they play above the rim. It's just a, a different game. And the purists, I think some purists may, you know, say, nah, it's really not for me. But I think for the most part, as far as the NBA product is concerned, it's entertaining. And the pace gets faster and faster every year. The Kings set a record last year for offensive rating and pace and averaged right around 121 points a game. Well, this year, those numbers would be barely be in the top 10. That's how much the game continues to advance on, on a yearly basis. I remember well, going – I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, ahead, David. Go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a purist, but I liked the game the way it was, to tell you the truth. I thought the last really good team that played the style that I liked was in Sacramento, was that 2002 team uh, with Chris Weber and, and uh, Jason Kidd and, and uh, White Chocolate – and they just passed the ball and, and, you know, kind of took a, took a page from the bird magic team. When we first started, the, the Celtics and the Lakers were good. And, you know, those teams that thought about pass first, I mean, it was just a much more entertaining brand of basketball than James Harden dribbling for 23 seconds and then shooting a three pointer, <laughs> which is generalizing, I'm sure. And, and I like defense a little bit more. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not enamored as enamored with the game today, although I agree with Gary, the athleticism is, is off the charts. But no one plays defense anymore, and you know it's just. I'm, I wonder what you know guys like Jordan would do in a, in a game where he couldn't be hand checked. I mean, the, the Jordan oh, rules in Detroit was about knocking knocking people down all the time. Um, yeah, I think you know there's there's a handful of guys, Gary, that could probably play in that old era. LeBron James certainly would would head that list. But you know, it's different strokes for different folks. It's a different game now. Um, it, it's 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 really promoted by by individual players. You know, when teams come to town, it's not so much. That so and so is coming to town. It, it's uh, the Bucks are coming to town. It's Giannis is coming to town. Right. Um, the stars. It's star driven league, and and they they've done a good job with that. And and you're right. The scoring is way up, and and it's um it's an entertaining brand of basketball for the most part. But you know, I kind of miss the 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 way the game was played beforehand. So I guess that does make me an old stick in the mud. <laughs> well, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, obviously the the, uh, the contention continues. 
about uh, the old days when you would see, uh, um, you know, wh- what would Mitch Richmond be doing in the NBA today? You know, if he wasn't driving to the basket and fighting his way to the rim and people like him in those, in those eras, that was exciting. That was the way I learned the NBA because when yeah. it started out, that's the way the, that's the way the game was. And my wife and I would sit there and just, you know, just, go crazy over the battling that was going on below the <laughs> rim. And then somebody would kick the ball out. You mentioned Jason Williams, white chocolate. Oh my gosh. I remember, um, I remember when he was, he got so red hot and became so famous overnight on national media that, uh, you had people like Magic Johnson coming up just to watch him and uh, other people from LA who came up, you know, there was, there were stars showing up at King's Arena to watch Jason Williams. There's just a lot of great memories for that team over the years. Yeah. It it really was a it was a terrific time and, and it hasn't been duplicated. Uh you know, it was seventeen years that the Kings last were in the playoffs. They finally made it last season. I mean, you talk about wandering in the desert looking for an oasis. I mean, it's amazing that we survived. I, I jokingly tell people, you know, before that, I used to be 6'4", and beat me <laughs> down to 5'8". To <laughs> you know, losing wears on you. There's no question about it. Oh, I know who you but, mean, Gary. We had the same thing up here with the Seattle Mariners who went 19 years without making the postseason. And you, you, it just it does wear on you a little bit. You, you yeah. wonder how, how, how it can happen, how it can be that way. Cowboys for yeah, like 25 I'm years since they won shirt. a championship. I'm, <laughs> you know, it's just something about not being there. And, and I'm, I was surprised. I mean, did, you know, I know the fan base went down a little bit, G, but did, did, did the hardcore stay with the team during that, during that wilderness period? It's amazing. I mean, they have, and it's, it's just, uh, they were so starved for success last year. Mike Brown comes in with a new coaching staff and kind of a new philosophy relating to a lot of different things. And he checked so many boxes in such a short period of time that it revitalized not only the fan base, it revitalized old broadcasters like myself. And it, it's just so refreshing to feel a little more like on most any night, you, no matter the situation or what team you're facing or what arena you're in, that you've got a chance to be competitive. And we haven't felt that way in a couple of decades. And, yeah. and so it's, it's just, as, like I say, so refreshing and, and so reinvigorating. Uh, and, and that helps you in terms of, not only your interest, but I think it helps you in terms of your performance and your broadcast. You know, we all strive to be, as broadcasters, to do our best every time you get the opportunity. But over a period of time, if you're constantly losing, you have to really talk to yourself some nights <laughs> and, and try to find something, some ray of positivity that you can feed off of. But the same token, I've always believed that you've got to be a realist and you can't deceive your audience. And if the Kings are sticking the joint up, I'm going to tell you that the yeah. Kings are stinking the joint up. And, and I think that that's, that that's the fair and the right way to approach it. Of course, I want them to win. You travel with a team, you know them, you, you, you run into them in the hotels, you're on the same flights, you're on the same buses, one thing or another, they become family. You're, you're part of a family. And that's one thing that Mike Brown really stresses. When he first came in, a year and a half ago to Sacramento, he made his first news conference and he said a couple of things that really resonated with me. And he said, I look at this organization. He was coming from the Golden State Warriors and the great success that they'd had in recent years, winning four championships, I think in seven seasons. And he's working under Steve Kerr and and they're doing amazing things. 
But he said, I look at this King's organization and I don't see a soul. You have to have a soul. And he says, I'm not talking about the players and the coaches, the training staff, the front office. I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about everybody in the organization, from the ticket takers to the people who guide you to your seat. You all have to be pulling on the same rope. You have to have the same belief, the same faith. And I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. And then he talked about defensive challenges. And, you know, in today's game, he is a, he's old school in the fact that, and he brings it up almost on a daily basis. If you're going to succeed, it's not just getting to the playoffs. It's going deep in the playoffs. And if you're going to be able to do that, you've got to play defense. Well, on that first public gathering, media, there were a handful of Kings players, including De'Aaron Fox, who's become somewhat, along with Demata Sabonis, the face now of the franchise. Foxy's leaning up against the wall on the other side of the room. And uh, Mike Brown says, you know, I remember De'Aaron Fox from his high school days in Texas and at a clinic or a camp or one thing or another. And I remember how I thought, man, his quickness, his speed is astounding. But he's got the skills to be a good defender. And if we're going to have success, we need people like De'Aaron Fox to step it up defensively. So he's basically calling out one of the stars of the players the first time he's in Sacramento. Offering the challenge that you've got to be better defensively to help this team. And it's kind of blossomed out of all of that. And it's, it's encouraging. It's, it's enheartening to see that the franchise has responded. The fan base has responded and there's, there's new hope in Sacramento. Now, that being said, as tough as it is in the Western Conference this year, you're in a dogfight every night. And there are no guarantees that the Kings are going to be back in the playoffs. They should be, but their inconsistency has hurt them this year. They've lost games that they absolutely should have won. And over the stretch of an 82-game season, Graz, you know this, there are going to be nights when you win some that you don't expect to win, and there are going to be nights that you lose some you never expected to lose. And it kind of balances out. But if you're going to have success, and if you want to avoid a play-in, you've got to be in the top six in your conference. And right now, that's a pretty tall task with 27 games remaining in this season for Sacramento. So it's a, it's an interesting ride. It's fun, and it lights my fire. I mean, it it, it just it your passion for the game and what you do is enhanced when the team you're working with has some semblance of success. Lighting your fire—that's not hard to do. I can see. <laughs> you you mentioned you mentioned uh, you mentioned Mike Brown saying that the team needs to have a soul, and the first thing I thought was, look at Gary Gerald, eighty three years old, called more than three thousand NBA games, and you're still fired up about it on a daily basis. I don't know how you do that. Graz and I are both retired, <laughs> <laughs> and I've just gotten to a point where, okay, I've had a terrific career, and uh, I don't miss it at all. But you well, good for you. Well, you seem like you really would miss it. How much longer are you going to go, G-Man? Well, uh, my wife and I have always had, you know, kind of the joint feeling that as long as I enjoy it, as long as I'm blessed to have good health, and as long as I feel like I'm wanted in that position. And that sounds a little self-serving, but but that's true. But those are kind of the parameters uh, for, for our family. And I, I'm, you know, 
I'm blessed to be uh, among a relatively small group who have the opportunity. And uh, I never thought back in those first years with Roz alongside that, you know, it would ever end up being any kind of a run like this. Uh, but uh, hopefully, hopefully, if the creek don't rise, we can we can just uh, hang in and, and keep doing it and maybe enjoy some more success along the way. Well, I appreciate what Gary said about um, about you know doing the games because I started doing Seattle U games and unfortunately I got uh, you know Parkinson's and a few other health things so I had to give that up. But that's something that I would I would still be doing that if I was healthy because there, there is something about being with a, with an organization with a team in this case a college team where you're close to the the people that that are there you care about the players who are there you care about the people around the organization in this case around Seattle University um, you care about how they're doing and. It doesn't feel like work. It does, it just doesn't That's feel right. like work at all, and it feels like you've got another family and you've got obligations to them. So, you know, I would I would I would have kept doing that, you know, as opposed to the day to day stuff, which um which I was happy to get out of. But uh, there is something very special about game. Gary is not the only one who's in his eighties who's, who's worked play by play. Um, there've been plenty of guys in the NBA. Uh, Al McCoy down in, in Phoenix, I know, uh, you know, did it for a long, long time, and Chick Hearn, of course, did it for a long, long time, and and um, there are many guys who do that for that very reason. I think it just it, it by itself keeps you young because uh, you're around young people all the time. You're yes. relating with them all the time. They're relating with you all the time, and um, it, it's it just becomes like an extended family to you. I don't know if we, we properly really... explained at the beginning, but uh, I did make a reference to Graz waiting to get <clears throat> get his shot at the mic, and that was a joke because uh, you did you did back up Gary. You were his uh, you were his uh, go to guy if he if he had to take uh, a day or two off to go do a race someplace or something. Or of NFL, that huh? Gary did NFL for a couple of years. Terry yeah, O'Neill had yeah. him doing NFL football, so. I wound up doing, I think that first year, Gary, I think that first year I did like half the games, the first 20, because you had, you had, you had, you had motorsports going, you had, you had the NFL going. I know you did the Olympics in, uh, in, um, Korea, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was during so, that time as well. Mm-hmm. So Gary was, was, um, was multitasking seriously at that point. Graz, you always, yeah, I, over the, oh, I'm sorry, you know, inevitably with this kind of link up on Zoom, we end up talking over each other. Don't lose that thought. Don't lose that thought, Gary. Uh, Graz, I was just going to ask you, you, you've over the years, you've had so many great anecdotes about uh, those old days around the Kings. and know that you got to be good friends with um, uh, Joe, Joe Klein and some of the other guys. <laughs> and you've told some great stories. I was just wondering if you could share one. About the players? Yeah. I think I got to be a Joe Klein rookie story, which is kind of funny. Joe uh, was the Kings' first rookie draft pick, so a lot of a lot of excitement about him from Slater, Slater, Missouri, sixth round pick, went to Arkansas, and was really a quiet, soft spoken country guy. And um, to, to emphasize that point, um, you know, everyone in town was excited, like Gary said, when when the Kings came to town, uh, just to be involved with it anyway. And so um, I had a friend, um, Chris O'Brien, who unfortunately passed away who was working at a uh, brilliant Graham uh, Buick and they wanted to give Joe a car They they wanted, you know, to have Joe car, maybe do some commercials for them uh, or, or just, you know, just have the car and, and, and ride around with it. And, and so he was, he wasn't sure what to do. And, and so I went with him and, and introduced him to Chris who, who they wound up becoming very, very good friends. And um, so Chris says, all right, well, let's, let's see, what do you, what do you want? And, and he looked and he was looking around and he pointed at, he said, well, that looks all right. And it was like a, it was like an eight year old used truck. <laughs> he's like no 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 get a new car pick a new car pick a big car and he's like well um 
you know, how about that Buick uh, Skylock or something like that? He's like, that's a tiny little car. Take a big car. You're, you're 6'11". <laughs> and so he was just so, just so worried about that, that, that it was, um, that it was, it was really funny. And, and. Didn't Clive say something about player. Yeah. Didn't he say something to the effect that, well, this one gets better mileage? And he just. Yeah, something like that. Huge... I mean, it, it was crazy. This is good enough for me. He's like, well, look, for the dealership, we want you to have a good car. <laughs> so, uh, geez, that was, it was a lot of funny things going on with those guys the, the, the first couple of years. And then, you know, we had interesting coaches come in too. I mean, Bill Russell, when he came in, oh, which yeah. was, I think just for everyone was just an overwhelming thing. And, and, um, he brought in Willis Reed, who I think Gary would, would, would agree with me, is, was just an unbelievably great guy. I mean, was just a, yeah. a real terrific guy. And, and uh, you know, I grew up in New York, and, and I remembered, you know, 69. I was only nine years old, but I remember him walking onto the court, and it was my chance to actually, you know, we were, we were, he was in the, um, we were in the red line, I think. It was before one of the games and, or after one of the games. And, and I, you know, I said, I'm going to buy Willis Reed a drink. I mean, I, this is, this is going to be special for me because I'm, I'm going to walk up there and I'm going to buy him a drink. And so I introduced myself to him. He said, I know you are, Dave. And I said, you know, I just, I'm sure this happens to you all the time, but I remember being motivated by, by, by you're walking on the court in 69 and you were such a great player. And, you know, I'd really like to buy you a drink. He's like, Oh, you don't have to do that. He's like, No, no, I really, I really like to. I really like to. He's like, You really, you really don't have to do that. You know, I, 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 and I said, why? Why, what is it? why can I do it? He says, well, I, you know, I have a, I have a pretty big drink normally. I'm like, well, that's okay. I mean, that's okay. I'll get, and he got like, um, a triple Cavassier with, with, with like a, with a sidecar. Uh, it was like four, four, four shots of, of, of alcohol, you know, and I was expecting a drink and I understood why he said it. And I, he said, see, you don't have to do it. And I'm like, no, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. Do it. And this was like a $30 drink. And, 40 years, 30 years ago or something like that. But, um, it was, it was just such a nice guy. He was such a nice guy. And that was, that was sort of the fun of, of, of the team being around then too, was, was, was getting a chance to see royalty. I mean, Jerry Reynolds was, um, was a, you know, Jerry, we all know Jerry was from French Lick, of course. So he knew Larry Bird. And, um, he, uh, he would tell stories about Bird and, and whatnot. And he was, you know, it was funny because he would be one of the only guys that, that you ever see Bird talking to. Would be Jerry because he knew his big brother so well. So, you know, it was just uh, it was fun. And then, then I think all the players, if I remember right, hung out. Um, there was really nowhere to hang out in Sacramento, and they built a place near um, near um, the Red Lion. It was a pool place. Do you remember uh, Confetti? Confetti. Yeah. And that's where you go in there, and every every for every road game, you'd have you have players in there from other teams, and and Theus and other guys would come down there and play pool because it was a, a big pool hall. And, you know, that year, I think the first summer of, of Sacramento, I want to say, you had Akeem Olajuwon in town a lot because he was marrying a girl from Sacramento. You had Dennis Rodman in town a lot for the same reason. And, you know, these guys were just hanging around, you know, during, during the summer in Sacramento. And, geez, you know, this is this is really going to be a big deal here. This is really going to be a big thing here. I remember you uh, you taking up tables at the Pepper <laughs> Mill after games with, with players and coaches there. Yeah, it was just, uh, it, it, everyone, uh, you know, it was just a, a really good time. It was a really good yeah. time. And, and that, that first crew of players, you know, they could have, they could have been a lot more standoffish than they were. And, and they weren't because you had guys like Eddie Johnson and, um, you know, LaSalle Thompson is another, another great example of, of just a great guy on that team. Uh, you know, you had, um, you had just, uh, just a good group of people there. And, you know, it was, it was really, uh, that was an important part of, I think, the success there was, was that the Kings came in. You know, with real a lot of publicity, and they were really good guys. And and Luganville was was amazing. And I still remember looking up and he, seeing him fix the ceiling 
the night yeah. when they were getting leaks in there. And I'm like, there's no other, there's no other team like this in, in, in sports. It's got an <laughs> owner who's, who's up there, you know, handling, handling stuff like that himself. I don't want to dra- – I'm sorry. No, no. Go continue. Finish. Well, I was going to. I was going to jump to another thing because uh, I was thinking about you know the Kings almost came to Seattle. This was um, yeah about ten years ago, Gary. Something yeah. uh, just years over ago. ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and um, you know there's a guy here who had been a um, been a ball boy in the old Sonic days, and he hooked up with Steve Ballmer, who's the current owner, of course, of the Clippers, but lived up here because he ran Microsoft. And they were going to go after a team, and the Kings um, were trying to get an arena downtown, and and didn't have it yet. And and you know they were they were really people here were really confident it was going to happen. And I had heard a story that that Kevin Johnson had gone to it was the mayor at the point that point had gone to David Stern and said, "What do we have to do to keep the team?" And David Stern said, "You get a publicly built, built arena, you'll keep the team." And they did that, and they did keep it, even though the the Sonic Group wound up um, offering sixty seventy million dollars more. They kept their word to the Kings. And I was wondering, Gary, how, in Sacramento, how much were people concerned about the team leaving at that point? Was it was it something they were really worried about there? Oh, you, the angst and the agony. I mean, absolutely. And as a broadcaster, I mean, there was a stretch. This The story surfaced. There had been a lot of speculation about possibility of the franchise moving. The Maloofs owned the team at that time. And there was talk about moving to uh, Virginia Beach. There was talk about moving to Las Vegas. There was talk about moving to San Jose, being in the market with the Warriors. There was talk about uh, going to Anaheim. And then this business of Seattle came into the picture, and it looked like it was an absolute done deal. And there were people saying that, you know, it's first and goal on the half-yard line. It's that close to being reality. And when we all learned of that, not only as broadcasters, but the fan base, it was just, it was agonizing. And we got, you know, every night before a ball game, I literally had to talk to myself to, you know, give myself a little rah-rah pep talk about don't let this drag down your performance. Don't let this seep into the broadcast. If, in fact, these are the final games we know of the Sacramento Kings in Sacramento, try to make them uplifting, upbeat as best you can. And that was a huge challenge. And I, I absolutely believed it was a done deal. And I was taking more pictures than normal in arenas and colleagues and one thing or another, because I thought I want to have these memories when this all goes away. And it was so sad because it wasn't just, you think about the lives that would be impacted and the ticket takers, the ushers, the people who worked parking cars, one thing or another, you think about at that time, I think the Kings were about 28 or 29 years into their being in Sacramento. And there was a whole generation that had grown up with the Kings as basically the only game in town. And now you were going to take that away. And you think about the young kids who would be denied the opportunity to go with their mom or dad or uncle or grandpa or whatever to a Kings game, to be in an arena, to see firsthand, you know, the Michael Jordans, the Kobe Bryants, one thing or another. And it was, it, it just, it, it hurt your heart. I mean, Dave, I, I thought it was an absolute done deal. Mm. And somehow, and, you, and you're right. I mean, Kevin Johnson sat down with, with uh, David Stern. And, and as I understand it, Stern wrote out a list of approximately 40 to 45 items, a checklist. If you can check these boxes, I can assure you the Kings will not leave Sacramento. 
And the foremost one was the fact that, you know, you've got to have a new arena and it needs to be downtown. And fortunately, Vivek Ranadive and a group of his colleagues came to the rescue and they were able to put up an offer. And it wasn't as good as what was being offered by Seattle. And here's another little offshoot. You think about this is 10, 11 years ago. The selling price ended up being right around five hundred and twenty five million dollars which at that time was a record in the NBA for the value of a franchise. And this is in an intermediate market, Sacramento, California, over $500 million for this basketball team. Ten years later, there are now multiple teams that are valued in excess of 3 and $4 billion. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's astonishing. It's astonishing. But I somehow... Mean, you know, the story had a happy ending. We got to the end of the regular season. You talk about emotion. People didn't want to leave the arena. Grant Napier and Jerry Reynolds, who were doing the television side, I was doing the radio side. They were literally emotionally choked up in tears in the final broadcast. I was doing everything under my power to try not to be swept up in that emotion. But knowing full well, this, this was the end of the road. And people would say, well, if they do move, you know, you'll go with them. Well, no, that's not the way it works. Right. If they went to Seattle, they want, they'd want somebody from Seattle. Collaboro, yeah. Yeah, and identity. And, and, and at any rate, when the news came that there was a meeting, it took place in Dallas, Dave, and uh, the owners, uh, the representatives of the league, one thing or another, it came to the, to the deciding vote. And Kevin Johnson, to his everlasting credit, uh, had checked off the boxes and David Stern somehow found a way and it happened. And the announcement was made that the league would not approve a move to Seattle. The Kings were staying in Sacramento and you talk about rejoicing. And I, I remember at the time I'm in Southern California with my wife. We're at a timeshare. We're out that particular day. We happened to be in La Jolla and we stopped uh, at a service station. My wife needed to go to the restroom and I hear this news on the radio and she comes back and I'm almost I'm almost gone totally out of my mind with the fact <laughs> you can't believe what we just what's happened. And the Kings are staying in Sacramento. It was crazy. It was That's just great. crazy. Well, I think a lot of people from a lot of walks of life uh, can tell you and have told you and will tell you for as long as we've been alive. It's like, uh, you know, there's something about Sacramento that people people grow there and stay. Yeah. And I, when I first got to Dallas, it's been 13 years now. From time to time, my path will cross with uh, Mark Cuban. He typically would come in and do our morning show and try to sell some tickets and whatnot, talk about politics or whatever. And at one point early on, he said to me, he said, so are you a Mavs fan now? I said, Mark, when the Sacramento Kings first hit town, I was at center court introducing the first team to the crowd. No, I'm not a Mavs fan. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's great. This is great. Thank you both so much. This has been fantastic. I know everybody's going to love it in Sacramento and uh, everywhere else for that matter. I really appreciate it. Both of you. Love you both. Well, thanks, you're, Dave. You're very and, kind. And Gary, again, you know, I, I tell you one last thing about Gary. I'm watching um, Netflix has got a. Um, <laughs> A, a documentary on Reggie Jackson called Reggie and I'm watching it and about 40 minutes into it, uh, I, hear, I, I hear this familiar voice asking Reggie Jackson a question and it's you. 
Yeah. Were doing, <laughs> it was like in the <laughs> early 70s. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 the smooth as silk, uh, it was just, it was just great to, great to, it was like running into a friend that you haven't seen in a long time. <laughs> I stopped a tape. I, Bonnie, Bonnie, come down here. Look, Gary Gerald. <laughs> yeah. I saw that. I yeah, noticed so that too. Was, I think it's, I sent you a note on Twitter about it. It was great seeing you then, Gary. And it was great seeing yeah, you. Yeah. Thank too. you. Thank you. I, I, that came as a total surprise. And there were, there are a lot of folks who happened to see that and, and, and let me know about it. And when I finally saw, it, I thought, okay, yeah, I remember that. Harry Sweet was the photographer. We went to Reggie's apartment in uh, Scottsdale uh, for spring training. And we were doing a feature and, and for whatever reason, Reggie and I hit it off and, and he welcomed me in. And I remember getting to ride with him in his Porsche Carrera. And I was just thinking, wow, this is, <laughs> this is about as cool as it gets right now. But, uh, perks, good, good times. Good times. Thank sports. you, guys, for remembering that. <laughs> Gary, David, thank you so much. Thank Blessings you, to you guys. Good health. Hang in there, Graz. We, we well, think my about best to Marlene. I will. Best to Bonnie, and I, I just, you know, keep keep doing your thing, man. And we'll hopefully a day at a time, and, and hopefully somehow it, it gets better as you go. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Dave, for, for having me do this. This is, this is terrific.